This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition of Airing Pain has been supported by a grant from the Women's Fund for Scotland. The symptoms were as if every step I took, someone was stabbing me with a knife up my vagina. There's no other way I can explain it. All you can really do because you need to be near a toilet and it's so painful and you feel just generally so unwell. I sit on a hot water bottle and just read or watch telly. And then the pain radiated out from there and I couldn't sit at all. I was in pain all the time. Interstitial cystitis or painful bladder syndrome is a poorly understood bladder condition that causes long-term pelvic pain and problems with urination. The charity Bladder Health UK estimates that 400,000 people in UK live with the condition, roughly 90% of women and 10% of men. Anne Cameron is a coordinator for Bladder Health UK in Scotland. It's an abnormality probably in the bladder lining. At the moment, the cause of it isn't known. It could be autoimmune or allergy-related. In some people, it tends to come along with other disorders like fibromyalgia, bowel disorders, migraines. Some people may have obvious abnormalities in their bladder under cystoscopy. Other people, it's not so obvious, but it generally causes or can cause pelvic pain, which can be really quite significant. Urinary frequency, difficulty avoiding urine, empty your bladder fully or go for long periods and quite a lot of other pain issues with say pain in your legs, various different areas in your pelvis. It does tend to vary quite a lot but at this moment the cause isn't known and there's no treatment that cures it and there's no treatment that helps everyone. Now you were a nurse? Yes. Did you have this? I had it when I was nursing laterally, yes, and it gradually worsened to the extent that I found work extremely difficult. Persisted in working despite the advice of my consultant was told that I shouldn't have been working. And then I eventually went on to have surgery, which restricts me to what kind of job I can do. And I couldn't go back to nursing because my job was too heavy. So I'm now medically retired. Anne Cameron, coordinator for Bladder Health UK in Scotland. Jennifer Hayes has had interstitial cystitis for two years. Well, mine actually started with a bout of traditional bacterial cystitis and I've had that on and off all my life since I was 17 and that's always cleared up by antibiotics. And then just less than two years ago, the antibiotics didn't seem to clear it up and I repeatedly went back to the doctor and said, it's not gone away and they would do their tests and they would say, but it has gone away. Then we kind of got into a loop. I was eventually referred to see a specialist, but that took nine months. And by then, it started to improve a bit. Of course, since then, it's recurred. So it's just a vicious loop, really. I suppose bladder problems, it's not something that you shout about or that that you really want to make known to people. No, it's not. But I found laterally when I was particularly trying to work, that I had to, I didn't have any option. Although you couldn't say to your workmates, I'm not feeling very well, I've got a headache. But because of where I worked, I was in a ward and there was no toilet facilities in the ward and it sort of obviously started to become obvious to some staff. And at times you do have to tell people because when your diet 
gets restrictive when your fluid intake starts to get restrictive at times or you're toilet mapping all the time you kind of find maybe a lot of people that you've been in contact with a lot of the time family friends all that becomes very difficult Anne mentioned the term toilet mapping. What do you mean, Jim? It's sort of keeping a record of how often you go to the toilet, how much you might measure what you've voided, because sometimes it doesn't empty properly, the bladder doesn't empty properly. So you need to keep a record of how much fluid is going in, how much fluid is going out, how often, how you feel, what pains are involved in that. I had quite a lot of intravesical treatments and at that point you have to chart. Into what treatments? Um, basically treatments passed by catheter into your bladder to try to coat your bladder and at that point they need to know how often you're going to the toilet, what problems you're having, what pain you're having. But the toilet mapping is also this thing in the back of your head. If you're going out, you need to know where all the toilets are in case mm. you have to rush and you get to the point that you can be quite obsessed about it at times. Travel's very difficult. Being on a motorway is an absolute nightmare. If there's a lot of traffic and you can't get off to the toilet that you know is a mile up the road type thing. What sort of issues do people who come to your support group bring with them? The younger ones, a lot of the time, it's managing work, managing a kind of normal life. I'd obviously been married for a long while and I'm quite lucky my husband's quite easy-wosy but it does put an awful lot of strain on your relationship at times. I certainly felt an awful lot of guilt and I know there's maybe younger members in the group that perhaps would like to have families and mm. all this kind of puts all that up in the air. So that must be even more difficult for younger people, you know, relationships and things like that. Explain why it puts it up in the air. If you were to decide to go ahead and have a family, you don't know how that's going to affect the interstitial cystitis, if it's going to make things worse. But it's very disruptive to your life. I worked night shift for years, but I quite often couldn't sleep when I come home during the day. It was quite common for me maybe only to get a few hours sleep one night a week type thing which is very disruptive if you've got somebody, a partner or family at home who are going out to work the next day. You know that you've kept them awake because you've been back and forward to the toilet all night. Uh, certainly in my case, and I think it must be quite common, a lot of the time I use a separate bedroom to avoid disturbing my husband. I think quite often people feel they find that a bit hurtful. So what do you tell the young people, the young girls who come along to the support group with interstitial cystitis, who are thinking about starting a relationship? We only really have one younger member in the Glasgow group at the moment. There's another couple of members who are already in relationships, and I think quite a lot of them have read up quite a bit beforehand. Obviously, things have been discussed about not so much preventing pain in the first place and not purely through relationships, but perhaps things that, that other members have found would ease their pain. Everything isn't the same for everyone. No. Some things suit some people and wouldn't be at all helpful to others. A lot of it's a very personal type thing and a lot of it's a kind of trial and error to see if there's anything that you would possibly find helps you. Obviously we had the talk from pain concern and pacing was mentioned. That's something I've tried to do for quite a long period of time. 
and sometimes that's something that I feel you have to try and fit into a relationship as well. Explain that. I don't understand how... Well, obviously I've been married for years. I'm not in a new relationship or anything like that. But if I thought that I was going to be intimate, I wouldn't, the two or three days before, do anything that was too active that I think would perhaps exacerbate things. I would have watched when I was working. I would have monitored how tired I was or how I was feeling at the time. And I certainly wouldn't have planned to have gone and done anything very adventurous the next day. It's not just with intimate things. If, if I'd wanted to do, say, anything outside or a hobby that I liked, you tend to find you have to work out what you want to do and then rearrange things either side of it to enable you to do that. You've probably found that mm. at times. Yes, you want to kind of do some planning, but your plans can often very easily go awry. But the, but you do need to sort of protect yourself and slow down. and. Pacing is very difficult, isn't it? Very, and, and it's almost like needing a crystal ball as well. And when you feel that you can do something, the temptation is, of course, to do, just go ahead and do it. But you say sort of plan two days ahead, uh, or may, maybe you could plan two days ahead if you want to be intimate with your partners. That is incredibly difficult for a young relationship. Yes, I think it is. And I think that's why so many people probably end up feeling very guilty and being hard on themselves, much harder than they really should be. But there's always this feeling that you're letting someone down. I would imagine particularly in a early relationship with younger people, it must be very difficult. What are the treatments, if there are treatments? There are various recognised treatments. None of them are cures. They don't all work for everyone. Some people, they may worsen their pain. Quite often, initially, if you have a cystoscopy to attempt to diagnose interstitial cystitis, you may also have a hydrodistension, which basically stretches your bladder with fluid under pressure. It's not 100% sure why that works or how that works, but it's probably to do with damaging nerve endings, so you're not feeling so much pain. That's certainly a treatment I had, and I wasn't perhaps very keen on the idea, and I, the logic behind it didn't seem quite right to me. But unfortunately, sometimes you don't really feel you've got any option. There's also a various range of bladder installations which you have, um, they're usually weekly treatments that run for six weeks and may be repeated every few weeks depending on your response to them. Most of them are based on hyaluronic acid, which didn't concern me, but the sort of older treatment is DMSO and it's based on a byproduct from the wood in industry, like paper and wood, and it's a glue-type substance, which I wasn't keen on, but that's one of the main treatments. There's only really one oral drug which is prescribed for this, but that's on an inpatient-only basis, and your consultant has to prescribe that for you. That can be quite difficult to get, depending on your consultant and which trust you're in. You usually have to take that for about six months before you would start to notice any difference. In America, I think for several years, they've been doing what they call rescue remedies, which has bicarbonate soda and various things, an installation that they put into the bladder. As far as I'm aware, that wasn't available in Britain till quite recently. I don't know how widely it's been used in Scotland, although I know there are some areas in England where it's been used, but that's to 
relieve the pain immediately rather than a long-term type thing. There's dietary advice. Some people may take antihistamines. There's probably quite a lot of people who unfortunately don't get the chance maybe to go to a pain clinic and, and are on morphine and things like that. I don't know that that generally that always helps people. Uh, certainly in my case, I take gabapentin and amitriptyline. It kind of tends to be perhaps which consultant you see. Some of them obviously have different ideas and there is quite a, a wide range of particularly antihistamines, I think, that people try. There's obviously quite a lot of herbal things and there's quite a lot of supplements which are suggested. But I think sometimes you've got to be careful because you could end up with this list of things as long as you're arm and you don't really necessarily know what's helping you and what isn't. And you were saying that you had a procedure, an operation yes. to help you out. I had what's called a continent urinary diversion with a mitrofenoff. Basically, my bladder had been so badly damaged and had such small capacity. I was more or less living in the toilet and there was no other treatments available to me. This was my last option. So I ended up having surgery and was in hospital for about four weeks. I had my bladder not removed. I had it disconnected because of issues with blood vessels. And I now have a section of bowel, um, which is internal and is now a reservoir for urine. I have a very small stoma, which I catheterise about every three hours. And unless I have problems in the future, I'm hoping this will be a a lifelong thing, although I may in the future have to resort to a urostomy and obviously we have an external bag. It has benefited me hugely in some ways, but in other ways can be quite difficult because it's not a commonly done procedure. My GP doesn't really have any awareness about it and that can make things quite difficult if I have any problems. Once I eventually had my first cystoscopy about four years after I started going to my GP, I got a definite diagnosis at that point. Up to that point, I had basically been told, oh, you've got IBS, get on with it. It's in your head. Anne Cameron of Bladder Health UK. And I think this is a good point in the programme to remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, You should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you, your circumstances, and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, back to what Anne Cameron was saying about being made to feel that the pain was all in her head. It's a recurring theme amongst the people I speak to who live with chronic pain conditions. However, it's not to say that the power of the mind isn't a fantastic resource to help manage one's pain. The acronym EXPECT, E-X-P-P-E-C-T, stands for Excellence in Pelvic Pain and Endometriosis Care and Treatment. The EXPECT Pelvic Pain Service is based in Edinburgh's Royal Infirmary and it consists of a multidisciplinary team, including a consultant gynaecologist, a consultant in anaesthesia and pain medicine, a specialist nurse, an acupuncture therapist, a psychiatrist 
and clinical psychologist Dr Shona Brown, who leads the pain management programme there. There's still an awful lot of misconceptions about psychology's role, particularly in pain management. And I think I always start consultations off with, with women by saying it's not because we think the pain isn't real or in their head, but we know that living with pain as a long-term condition can be incredibly stressful, can impact what people can do, and that can have a knock-on effect to their mood. And it's all about trying to help people live well with long-term conditions. And one of those people who's been living with her long-term condition, that's pelvic pain, for five or six years is Pat Brown. I'm in pain. I've got It's chronic. It's neuropathic. And I think it started because I had lichen sclerosis. And once I was treated with steroids for that, I seemed to have a reaction to it and was left with this pain that I just had to try to deal with and wasn't dealing with at all. The symptoms were as if every step I took, someone was stabbing me with a knife up my vagina. There's no other way I can explain it. And then the pain radiated out from there and I couldn't sit at all. It seems quite simple to say I couldn't sit down. But that affects everything in your life. You can't go out and socialise. You know, I always joke to say I could lie down with my legs up in the air all day, but other than that, I can do anything. And then as the medication increased, and I'm not sure if it's a medication or myself, I began to get more panic attacks and have night terrors and couldn't sleep either. So I was in a state both physically and mentally, that I thought, I know it sounds dramatic, but I thought I just could not continue like that. And I was so lucky that my GP referred me to Shona and I attended Shona's class for 12 weeks, so it was six sessions. The crazy thing is I think I was in so much pain and so panicked about it, I couldn't see a way out of it. And I now wonder why I didn't look at other things I could have done, but at the time I wasn't able to. Is that a common story? Yeah, and I think the nature of pain, it's so <clears throat> completely life-altering and I think people feel really stuck and I think often when they come along to our clinic they've been very... I think our society is very geared up to the medical model. You know, we have a symptom, we expect to go to a doctor for them to give us a diagnosis, a treatment and that we will then be cured. And you know, medicine is amazing, and for lots of things it works very well, but we do know there's some times that it just doesn't work that way. And I think lots of the women that I see feel very stuck and very hopeless and not sure where to turn now. They feel quite in a, in a path of trying to see a different doctor, get another opinion, another medicine. And I think sometimes it can feel a bit of a relief to know there's something else that can help, another type of approach, and to look at some non-medication strategies. So at what point were you introduced to the idea of seeing a psychologist, Pat? I didn't even know I was going to see a psychologist because my GP said she would refer me to pain management at the hospital and I did say at the time please refer me to someone that will actually help and so I was referred to Shona's clinic. When I got there and I had two one-to-one sessions with Shona. First of all, I just cried, more or less, all the way through it. Initially, I wasn't sure of where this would take me, but actually I was really pleased to speak to someone. And I think with neuropathic pelvic pain, it's very isolating too. You can't actually go to someone and say, well, you know, 
my bum's really sore or I can't sit. You, you can't. Well, I've never felt I could. Yeah, I live alone. So I could speak to my son and one or two people, but generally, even now, maybe five or six people know I have this condition. I think it's an embarrassing condition for a woman and a woman maybe of my age, but I was very isolated as well. So I was happy to speak to Shona, not really having any expectations. And she did mention in the first time, or maybe the second time we met, about would I think about trying mindfulness? And I said to her, well, I was too old and cynical, and that wouldn't be, I wouldn't be doing that. But, you know, I wasn't really sure of what I was entering into. It's a huge leap, isn't it, Shona, from you go to doctor to be fixed. Mm-hmm. The doctor fixes, you are fixed. Mm-hmm. So it's a huge leap to come to somebody like you. What always amazes me is the bravery of people coming along and I'm asking, you know, really personal, intimate questions and how open people are and how open-minded they are. And, and I think maybe it is a reflection of people feel they haven't got anywhere else to go and, they, and they're willing to give it a try. But I think that's, you know, that's great from my point of view as a pain psychologist, if people come with an open mind, willing to try things out. And I think that's sometimes part of the work we do as, as pain psychologists is trying to help people start to come to terms with that process of adjusting to the fact this might be persistent and maybe a cure isn't going to be coming along anytime soon. The first session that um, Shona did was actually about understanding your pain and looking at the actual sort of physical, you know, what pain is. And I suppose in a crazy way I had never thought of that. I think I was into the model of going to the doctor and getting it fixed. So I think you build up confidence in the group and then to be quite honest I was very very desperate and I would have tried anything if I could have stood on my head you know for half an hour every day and that would have got rid of my pain. I tell you I would have managed it. So I was willing to try everything that Shona um, sort of Recommended. I didn't do all of them, but I certainly looked at them, tried them out and thought, does that fit for me? And through that, managed to develop some strategies that helped my pain. What sort of strategies? Well, the first thing Shona gave me, because I was so desperate when I saw her on the one-to-one sessions, she gave me a CD of tracks of relaxation. At first, I listened to all of them, and then there was one which was a very straightforward one of tensing and relaxing. Nothing, you know, nothing. But I decided I would do that every night before I went to sleep. I'd go to bed and I'd listen to the track with my earphones on. And I did that, and I have to say, before I even started the pain management course, the night terrors went. I still didn't always sleep well, but that actual horror... But maybe it was also the fact that I felt I was doing something. You know, whatever it is, it was something I was doing. I remember saying to Shona in class when we were in the group that I was going to do this every night, whether I felt great or bad, no matter what, and it would be my sort of security blanket. And I'm still doing it two years later, every night. It wouldn't matter if I went to bed at three in the morning, I couldn't go to sleep before I did this relaxation tape. So that was one strategy I've kept. Other strategies are doing mindfulness every day. And exercise, which, you know, I'm not a very keen on exercise. I wouldn't say I was a, you know, an active child or adult. But now I do exercises, especially yoga. So that's another one. And actually just trying to have a much more positive mindset 
when it, it flares up at its worst to think, I've been here before and it has got better. And if I can really, really distract myself, then I will have even five minutes without pain, which could end up being an hour. The first time I did a yoga class, I didn't have pain the whole of the rest of the day. Um, but that sometimes now I do yoga and I've not got pain for an hour. But I never come away from a yoga class in pain. Pain management programme, you said it's a 12-week programme. But what happens when that 12 weeks is over, when you're on your own? That's something we talk about as part of the, the group. And we start to prepare people to think about what are the next steps, because I'm well aware that doing a, a, you know, a short-term group, it's not that at the end of that group everything is, is exactly how the person would like it to be. It's a, introducing to some coping strategies and a start of, of a process. So then thinking about what the next steps are and what there is, perhaps third sector organisations that might support that. I always mention pain concern and earring pain and, and to give people some of the things that are out there that they might want to link in with. You know, things like Volvo Pain, we mentioned the Volvo Pain Society website, get people thinking about what other sources of support there are. And yeah, and acknowledging that it can be a bit of a scary time. That I think if people have made progress, they sort of attribute that to coming along to the group. Where, and I think I often think about it quite differently. I think actually it's what the people that are coming along are doing. It's, it's them that are making these changes. We're just giving them some ideas. So discussing some of that, I think, can be helpful too. That was psychologist Dr Shona Brown of the Pelvic Pain Service in Edinburgh, and some of those third sector organisations, of course, we at Pain Concern can be found at www.painconcern.org.uk. She also mentioned the Vulval Pain Society and its web address is vulvalpainsociety.org. And the patient support charity Bladder Health UK can be found at bladderhealthuk.org. No gaps, as in all these addresses I'm giving you, bladderhealthuk.org. Here's their coordinator in Scotland, Anne Cameron's advice for those who think they may have interstitial cystitis but aren't sure. What's the first step? I think I would look at their symptoms, advise them to think how long this has been going on for, the problems that they're actually having, obviously going to their GP. If they're looking online, obviously look to sites like Bladder Health UK, be careful at times looking online because it's like everything else. You can get a lot of bad advice and sometimes it's very easy to read things and think, oh, I might try that or I might do this or... Everyone's entitled to different views, but look for information via a reputable source. If they feel this is possibly what they've, they've got, perhaps do a wee bit of research and if you decide to go to your GP, explain your symptoms and explain to them why you think you have this. But to be honest, realistic about it, you might find you have to push quite a bit or it's something that you have to persist with. So you have to be positive with your GP? Yes, I think so. Sometimes it's difficult to be, but I think if you perhaps go in negatively with a big list of symptoms and you're really stressed about it in front of them, I, I don't always think that benefits you best. In all fairness, probably at times I was a bit like that because I found it so long took so long to get a diagnosis but contact Bladder Health UK's phone them up they've got loads of resources whether it be books or whether it be advice leaflets you've also got the capacity to ask questions they have a medical panel of urologists and things can be ran past them there are quite a lot of options but just be careful where you look for the advice 
Andy was saying about seeing your GP, a pain concern, publish a document, but managing your consultations as well. And I think one of the words of advice is that you should go in with a short list, yes. not a list of 24 things that mm -hmm. you think might be wrong with you. Yes. And just tell me again, support groups, how important are they, Jen, for somebody starting out? I think they're tremendously important because very few people mention the word interstitial cystitis, actually. My doctor has never called it that at all. What does he or she call it? Irritable bladder syndrome. But at, when I went to see the uh, specialist at the hospital, all the support staff said it's probably interstitial cystitis, or have you ever heard of that? But I had already heard of it, because when you start looking at bladder conditions, it leads you, and then you lead and you look at that and you think, oh, that's it, that's just exactly what it is. That was Jennifer Hayes. Now, we referred earlier to endometriosis. If this is something that affects you, then listen to Airing Pain edition number 42, which focuses on endometriosis. You can download that and all editions and transcripts of Airing Pain from Pain Concern's website. And once again, it's painconcern.org.uk. Now, to end this edition of Airing Pain, you remember that Anne Cameron mentioned that her GP had thought her pain was all in her head. When I went back and just happened to see the same GP again after my surgery, I think he was a bit taken aback. He obviously realised you don't end up going through major surgery and being in the hospital for a month for something that's in your head. The plus point there, I guess, to fill one's glass half full, was that now your GP knows what the condition is. Well, I hope so. <laughs> I hope so, and I hope it's something that would be to advantage of other people going in with the same kind of symptoms. I hope they would pick up on it now, rather than people being in this situation where it goes on for years and you're unable to get any help. I hope what I've obviously gone through would perhaps be of benefit to someone else.